Matt. Yes. You know that bloke Elon Musk? Elon Musk. He, uh, What's he, he been up to, uh, Jamie? What's well, he been up to? He's he, been a bit quiet recently, hasn't he? Yeah, he hasn't done much, has he? <laughs> Uh, and no, he gave a pretty long, I believe it was an hour and 20 minutes, keynote speech. Keynote speech. And, uh, well, I don't like to use the word keynote because it reminds me of the fact that Apple... Yeah, the old Apple thing. Let's call it his, his PowerPoint his presentation. PowerPoint presentation. So he was essentially outlining his plans to colonise Mars. Last podcast, we barely mentioned Elon Musk because... Well, we were too busy interviewing an Apollo astronaut. Exactly. So we've kind of compressed everything SpaceX into this episode. So welcome to the Interplanetary Podcast number eight, SpaceX Special. I've been waiting for this one. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Welcome to the Interplanetary Podcast. Put in the ace. ace. Back in space. There we go, boom. Yeah, okay. We're in. All right, welcome to the Interplanetary Podcast, number eight. Okay, so he outlined a number of uh, details about his plans. Uh, The first one, I believe, being the system architecture. Yeah, no, I have to say, uh, while watching this live, this this really took me by surprise, because did everyone else think that this was going to be the Falcon Heavy? Yes. That was going to be doing all this, and that was the whole point. And then suddenly we have this whole new vehicle, mm. which is named after the Interplanetary Podcast. It the, is. Yeah, the, Interplan- the ITS. The ITS, the Interplanetary Transport System. Thank you very much, Elon, for the nod. There, there we go. Thanks. It's an endorsement, isn't it? It is. It's quite an endorsement, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Elon. The first thing is to have a quick look at this particular thing. It's absolutely It enormous. is massive. So to put it into context, I believe it's five times bigger than Saturn V. I saw a uh, picture today... And they laid it out, and from diagonal to diagonal on an American football pitch, it laid out hmm. the whole complete. But Saturn V probably gets about three quarters of the way. So yeah, is it is it just purely the volume that it takes up? Uh, good question. I don't know exactly. It's certainly not five times taller. That took me by surprise for a start off. And then he went on to outline how this thing was actually going to uh, get over to Mars. Mm-hmm. And what was nice, he showed the simulation, and, that, and when it finished, he said, "By the way, we are we're we're making this." Here's the first remarkable fact that mm. came up was the this large booster that's bigger than uh, Saturn V, and Saturn V is massive. Yeah, and this thing's supposed to be used a thousand times mm. to try and get the economic benefit of, of yeah. it, because otherwise it'd be too expensive. So he's already talking about. Uh, cutting the costs by mass producing these things, using them thousands of times each. Absolutely. So, so I think the figures is, isn't it uh, trying to get from $10 million per journey down to $200,000? No, $10 billion per journey. I'll take two tickets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, each passenger. Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah, I mean, okay. So uh, what's this vehicle made from? This was another surprise is a carbon fibre. There have been some uh, 
things on the on the web about carbon fibre and its ability to stop space radiation. Yes. that I think that is a concern because there isn't yeah. been much research on that, I don't think. Spaceships have been not made from carbon fibre, they've been made from metals. And yeah. So it would be interesting to see exactly how that works because space radiation is actually fast-moving cosmic rays and things like that that mm. actually can be made worse as they go through a, uh, a thick hull of a ship yeah. because they go into smaller, more damaging particles. Mm. That, I think, needs some looking at. Definitely if he's planning to send hundreds of people up there. Or as he says, he wants to, for a self-sustaining city, there needs to be a million people. Wow. That's when you know that, that the species can carry on quite happily if a big asteroid uh, yeah. does to us what it did to the dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, you, you definitely need several thousands purely on the fact that the gene pool mm. needs to be big enough. Mm. But yeah, a million, a million, I suppose, because you would you need a society big enough to be able to generate all the things that you would need to sustain even one human life. Absolutely. So yeah, it becomes, everyone would have a job, everyone's job would be vital. Mm. even with a population of a million. Well, imagine how scary it would be if you saw an asteroid hit Earth and then you go, right, that's it, we're on our own. That's it. Yep, so uh, mm. I've actually got some figures for uh, the uh, Saturn V versus... Oh, you know I love a stat. So, yep, Saturn V <laughs> Saturn versus the ITS. Yes. The ITS stands a, a bit taller than the, the Saturn V. Mm-hmm. Um, the booster rocket itself doesn't. It's got three and a half times the thrust, mm-hmm. four times the expendable low Earth orbit payload. Let's now, talk a little bit about the engines. So the engines that he t- tested very, very recent, recently at the time of the talk, you mm-hmm. know, it may have even been that day or the day before, he is the Raptor engine, which is a full-flow staged combustion. Now, if you want to know what full-flow means, mm. Scott Manley's done a very good video about what is actually meant by full-flow stage combustion. Yeah, you should check that out. Again, completely built by uh, SpaceX. Yeah. Although not 3D printed this time, because it would be too complicated, apparently. So there we go. Yes. So how many of these Raptor engines do you think he's going to be using? Well, I know it's 42. Nice. And he was saying at the time that the reason it's 42 is a few different reasons. The main reason is that, obviously, if several engines go down, mm-hmm. that they've got spares. See, what makes me worry is the Russian equivalent of Saturn, mm. which was called the N1, oh, yes. also went for the multiple engines thing and mm. never worked. Yeah, that's a bit of a worry. Yeah. I think he chose 42 engines because it's the meaning of life. Oh, that's why. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Hmm, hmm. And of course, yeah, he then he, he made several references to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, that's true. So the ship gets accelerated to 8,650 kilometres an hour. It's pretty fast. Or 5,375 miles per hour, give or take a mile an hour. Yeah. And at which point, this huge 77.5 metre structure returns to the landing site. And can what? do many more times. What? Yeah. To pick up the second top. Yeah, so that's 7%. To refuel. Yeah, so 7% of its 
uh, booster is then going back down to, to oh, this is just crazy, man. Uh, so then he outlined, you know, how these engines would be mounted. But then he went into a bit more detail about the interplanetary ship itself, yeah. the transport system itself, which in, in itself is 50 metres long hmm. and uh, 70 metres in diameter. So this is going to hold not only the passengers, <clears throat> but also liquid fuel mm-hmm. and hydrogen fuel? Isn't the propellant important in the fact that they could make the propellant on Mars? Yes. So isn't it methane? Oh, yeah, right. I think of, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, See, what I like to do, Matt, is I like to get a statistic wrong mm-hmm. to make you feel better later in the show. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Then he went on and showed us all the, the, the classic Delta V charts, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners understand, which is great. Oh, of course they now, one of the thing, one of the problems always going to Mars is the old slow down. How do we stop? How do we slow down? So, mm. so obviously you've got two options. You can uh, slow down using boosters, or you slow down using the atmosphere. And and Elon's gone for uh, the uh, old atmosphere. Mm. So the ship enters the atmosphere, capturing it into orbit and proceeding directly to landing using its aerodynamic lift capability and advanced heat shield materials. The ship can decelerate from entry velocities in excess of 8.5 kilometres a second. Mm. G-forces during entry are approximately 4 to 6 Gs at Mars and 2 to 3 Gs at Earth. I'd want to be strapped in. Yeah, it's, it's going to be uncomfortable, yeah. particularly for 100 people sitting in this thing yeah. on the first journey. I should imagine that that, my friend, is the definition of terrifying. Agreed. So, the first ship will have a small propellant plant which will be expended over time, effectively unlimited supplies of carbon dioxide and water on Mars. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've, uh, it's going to be using uh, oxygen and methane. There we go. Told you. <laughs> so, he's saying cost per tonne to Mars will be less than $140,000. Mm. Now that that figure just seems absurd to me. Mm. I just think that that's you know I just don't get it. I think that's just way 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 too little. Yeah. So uh, yeah, the 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 overall fabrication cost each. So the booster is two hundred thirty million, tanker one hundred thirty million, and the ship another two hundred million. So combined, that's quite a lot of millions, isn't it? That's uh, 560 yes. million. So we're just shy of, we're just over half a billion pounds for the ship. But this $140,000 per tonne is assuming that the, the, the booster itself is used a thousand times. Mm. You know, that, yeah, that's quite an assumption as well, isn't it? Yeah, and its launches per Mars trip is six. So this is so this figure is assuming no crashes. I was going to say no damages. What happens? No, if no mishaps. Have a few of them blow up. And six is into a thousand. Well, so, well that's slightly less than two hundred. So it, we we got like a hundred and eighty odd trips to Mars mm. to get this figure down. One hundred and eighty. Yeah. Trips to Mars. This is all sounding. This is all starting to to sound. 
you know, pretty crazy. I tell you what, if anyone can sound crazy and do it, yeah, and that's uh, yeah. And at this point, he kind of said, "Well, where am I going to get the funding from?" And he made some joke about having steel underpants. Uh huh. Uh, launching satellites well yeah I mean you make some money but it was still way short of this figure that he's talking about yeah uh, and sending cargo and astronauts to the ISS yeah well, you know he gets paid for that yeah. true uh, Kickstarter yeah yeah I don't I've, know about I've that I've not had a very good experience on Kickstarter unless Bill Gates is helping out on Kickstarter I mean here's how Kickstarter works you, you, you say you're going to make something really cool like a drone that follows you and control on your iPhone, Hmm. stick it up, raise way more money than you asked for, Hmm. and still not deliver it. And in the meantime, you've paid yourself a salary for three years, and then you just go to your investors and, yeah, sorry, it didn't work. Yeah. That's it. That's what Kickstarter is for me. Do you think that's what Musk's up to? Maybe Musk's up to this old plan. He just wants to get paid, isn't he? (laughs) He just wants a salary. Well, fair play. I don't blame You know, he's got kids. He's He's got kids to feed. So then... Here we. I thought this was one of the most jaw-dropping moments of the whole speech. Was mm. his timeline? Yes. Yeah. So his his timeline is saying Falcon Heavy will be flying by 2016. Well, even that is already yeah. in doubt. Uh huh. I mean, 2016 Falcon Heavy. Do mm-hmm. you see it? Well, we haven't, I, got, we haven't got long left. I'm not sure he'll even fly another Falcon 9, let alone Falcon Heavy in 2016. I'm going to say he can do it. Let's come back and see where we are. Okay, okay. Uh, uh, then he's got the crew, uh, dra- the crew Dragon development, which uh-huh. is ongoing, and that's already slipped behind schedule. And that's work for NASA. That's with NASA breathing down his neck going, you've yeah. got to get this done, Elon. Chop, chop. Uh, which is, leads me on to another interesting article that uh, people were saying that well, they went down and sort of said, and NASA was saying, well, how's the uh, Crew Dragon getting on? Mm. Uh, oh, yeah, no, well, well, some of the engineers are doing something else at the moment. So, so like, oh. they're not even concentrating on one project. Yeah, so that's you problem. can see that they're being a little bit pushed. You know, maybe there is a problem inherent at SpaceX that there's... They're not concentrating on one problem at a time. Yeah. And that they need to nail these things. You know, NASA's public money, they they need to maybe sort of look at it and go, yeah, we We should probably do this. Yeah, particularly considering uh, uh, America has no seats booked on Soyuz anymore. That's it. Mm. So now they really are gambling on Boeing or SpaceX getting them to the the space station. Yeah. There's no other way to the space station. Yeah. Or maybe that's why... America have been talking to China recently. Yeah. They get them up there on a Shenzhou. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, maybe because they prefer the Chinese as Russians at the moment. Nah, I mean, that's a big old mess. It is a it's mess, a big isn't old it? Mess, that one. It is a so, mess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost uh, uh, Cold War take two. Yeah, I, well, well uh, David Baker brings that up in the interview that we'll be playing later on. He, he brings up the whole timeline of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm. And where that left us, and and, and it's very very interesting. Mm. So uh, we'll be playing that at the Definitely end of this podcast. Check that out. Yeah. So my quote that I enjoyed the most, which 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 goes back to this timeline of uh, ten years, you know, trying to get to Mars within ten years. That's if things go <laughs> super well. Super well. I mean, super well. There we go. That's There's quite a thing, isn't it? Oh, I like that. I like that phrase. Super well. Because things often go. Super well, yeah, that's true. Hey, when in life has things gone super well? <laughs> oh, by the way, when, when, whenever I say super well, 
you need to think need of to me as doing the, the, quote marks. the quote marks when I'm Air when quotes. I say super well. Can you can you can you feel me doing it? Anyway, <laughs> Red Dragon missions. Of course, we've already had that tagged in for two, 2018, which is yes. of course the Mars window. Absolutely. So he either does it in that year or he does it in 2020. Um, but yeah, the Red Dragon mission. Obviously, that relies on uh, that relies on Falcon Heavy flying mm. for a start off. So is you know Falcon Heavy flying is a, is a big one, as is the Crew Dragon development is another big one. Yeah, uh, and of course, getting the reliability back into uh, Falcon Nine launches mm. to have two failures in in a small period of time has put after having such a great track record. Mm. It's a bit worrying. Yeah, it's put a lot of yeah. pressure on him, isn't it? A lot it? of pressure. And actually, at some point, he might start to find that he's uninsurable. Mm. Yeah, but Matt, it wasn't an explosion. It was a very fast fire. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, then we get into ship testing, booster testing, orbital testing. So he's going to be doing all that in this sort of early 2020s. And the Mars flights themselves are going to start... In 2022, now that seems unbelievably ambitious, yeah. And this is going to be going on and on and on now. So, that you know, that is his timeline is that he wants to get this done now. So, wait, hold, hold, stop the press. Mm -hmm. 2022, Mm. so you're telling me that in six years. There'll be this massive. There will be a potential. We'll be watching the uh, the massive mission to Mars, Hmm. and this will obviously. He said that the first manned mission will be about a dozen people, basically just to start the construction of what the whatever the first thing they Hmm. want to start building is. Um, I mean, wow, that doesn't seem that long, does it? No, it's what six years is an incredibly short time. Do you think he can do it? There is a thing. Elon Musk's time time frames are silly. On the whole, mm. he says, "Let's do this," and then he nowhere near gets there. But he has, by setting a ludicrous target in the first place, shortened the time that it that it takes. It to will do be absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that's why he does it. He's well, not yeah. going to come out and say, "Well, we're we going to get f- this done by 2050." People might switch off, and I've got a feeling that working for Elon yeah. Musk is would be pretty stressful now I think you got to one of the best parts of the entire presentation where mm. it's like everyone's just like well this is just the ramblings of a madman mm. and it's like no actually we have actually been building some of the necessary hardware yeah. and so at this point he revealed his picture of the, one of the carbon fuel tanks mm. which is phenomenal it's beautiful isn't yeah it? no it's absolutely amazing so that that was pretty incredible uh, and then, as promised in sort of earlier sneak previews, he went on to reveal about how this uh, ITS would be quite capable exploring the entire solar system. So mm. it, it can go on to to sort of fly past Jupiter or land on Enceladus or land on Europa. Oh, yeah, let's take a little trip out to Europe. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's possibly a more exciting element to this is the fact that maybe you know his this technology will allow us to do some serious research into into the solar system uh but yeah man is is that like saying you're just going to pop down the shop for some milk you're going to 
pop over to Europa for some more yeah. frozen water. I think it's pretty much yeah. exactly the same as that. <laughs> <laughs> incredible. So, Either way, incredible. <clears throat> so after that happened, we've had a sort of month of reflection now. Yes. Um, mm. Most noticeably is uh, Robert Zubrin, who is... Uh, so he wrote... He was the author of um, A Case for Mars. Yeah. Uh, which I believe was written back in the 90s, early 90s. Yeah, but and he's has been very influential on Elon Musk. Absolutely. I would imagine, you know, he's... Um, well, he sort of pointed out that the... Um, that he, he was going to examine each element in turn. So the first thing he pointed out was the extremely large size of the proposed launch system. Yes. And like you said, four times bigger than a Saturn V rocket. Mm. And that is a serious problem because even the company's impressively low development costs, SpaceX has no prospect of being able to afford the very large investment at least $10 billion. There we go. So to re- require to develop a launch vehicle of that size. And you think, well, yeah, where are they going to get the money from? Mm. Because this it's not like... It, 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 this becomes a money pro- problem, doesn't it? It's mm. like, is there where where does the money come from? It's not a it's not a. Well, Halloween's around the corner. Maybe he could instead of asking for candy, he do trick or treat. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Just ask for, you know, mm. fair enough. Couple of bills. So a lot of people have been moaning that Elon Musk is treating his Mars mission like it's a Moore's law problem, the classic mm. Kurzweil. Uh, gain by exponential growth Mm. Uh, and there was a good article saying, uh, which basically concluded that vision without funding is hallucination yes, that's a good line that it is a great line isn't it, Mars is not a how problem it is a why problem Mm. and the the writer grew wary of pretty pictures of rockets Musk has done the easy part of sketching the obvious destination the hard part is why and why pay for it, and that has been on hold for decades. Must rocket blueprint put us no closer than we were mm. half a century ago? A little bit harsh. That's very harsh, but in a funding way, he's probably correct. The funding bit, he's correct. You'd yeah. have to have an international effort that says, look, I mean, maybe if a asteroid hit Earth and it was so... Horrible, wiped like an asteroid. City. Yeah, wiped out a city, and everyone suddenly took asteroid threat as being extremely serious, then or another, or, or some like. other natural catastrophe. Then people might go, "Okay." We so, know. how's this for a theory? Then Musk is going to plan an asteroid hitting a city. <laughs> what do you think about that, Musk? Mm-hmm. Only kidding. I know you'd never do such a thing. It's the sort of thing a Bond villain would do, though. Isn't Definitely, it? yeah. Yeah. Like Christopher Walken trying to collapse Silicon Valley and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't killed anybody since 1985. <laughs> what film's that, Matt? Um, true Romance. Is it True Romance? Do you know, last night, I had a dream that I was acting in True Romance. No way. Yeah. Oh, where is that? Well, I realised I'd been walking in my sleep. Oh, for... That so aside, funding. use okay. of methane oxygen bipropellant for takeoff from Earth, trans Mars injection, and direct return to Earth. Mm. These ideas go together, but are, uh, and are very strong. Methane oxygen is after hydrogen oxygen, the highest performing practical propellant combination, and is much more compact and storable than hydrogen oxygen, and it's very cheap. Mm. And it's the easiest propellant to make on Mars. Yes. However, it should be noted that while the manufacture of methane oxygen from Martian carbon dioxide and water is certainly feasible, 
It certainly isn't without cost, power and capital facilities. Yes. There's obviously a problem there. Mm. That, like, like manufacturing uh, methane on, on the planet Mars mm. will require industrial scale Absolutely. stuff. Where it's like, and then well, you have to have the cost of getting that stuff there. And, and this stuff can't break, because if it breaks, you can't get off the planet. Mm. You know, so it's, it becomes a serious problem. Yeah. Everything, everything becomes a serious problem on Mars. Yeah. I mean, I, I know what my biggest objection to this entire thing is. Go on. Well, the whole presentation does not talk about what it's like to live on Mars. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, even, brushes, he even almost makes a joke about it. About, but he's going to get people there. That, it's going to be that. fun. He talked yeah. about pizza shops. <laughs> yeah, pizza, well, that's that's pizza, sh- well. pizza shops on the what journey. What happens when you don't want a pizza? You want a curry. Then what, Ooh, Elon? Yes, uh, I mean, you know? Not everyone will like pizza, will they? No. And I'm assuming, why is pizza popular? I think he was just talking about the journey, about how fun it was. Basically, when it gets down to Mars, it's just going to be nothing but hard, dangerous, life-threatening work. Yes. The first people on Mars will have nothing but toil. In the same way that the first settlers in America had nothing but toil, but they were living on planet Earth, a place where humans yeah. have evolved over millions of years to cope with planet Bre- Breathing Earth. our air, drinking... Working with soil... Seemingly unlimited in. supplies of fresh water. Oh, yeah, exactly, so... That's the worry. So Matt, how do you, how do you I've spoken it? to quite a few of my friends about this, and one of the main questions they always ask is... What are we going to do for water? Can you explain that? What's his plan for water? Well, there's, there is plenty of water on Mars. That's been frozen water, frozen water, and subsurface water. Okay. So, but obviously, there there will be some form of industrialization that will be required to generate mm. enough water for for. Well, when it, once it comes to millions of people, we're, we're talking. You know, it's hard enough for your local council to make sure that a city the size of Birmingham yeah. has fresh water. You yeah, know, this absolutely. takes reservoirs and and enormous infrastructure to, mm. to make that happen. So, you know, this is and that's on Earth. Like we keep we keep saying that that's on Earth yeah. where we've evolved to and slowly built up these facilities. Yeah. Where to so just sort of drop them in. So yeah, he brushed over the uh yeah, lots, of brushing, lots of brushing over lots of brushing over. I guess he's kind of thinking, well, you know, let's. Here's the first thing we're gonna. This is how we're gonna get there. I guess he's got time to to iron out the finer details, mm. so to speak. Uh, all flight systems are completely reusable. It's an important goal for minimising cost, and SpaceX is already making substantial advances towards it. However, for a mission component to be considered reusable, it doesn't necessarily need to be returned to Earth and launched again. The idea is reflected in some parts of the new SpaceX plan, such as refilling the second stage in low-Earth orbit, but as we shall see, it is ignored elsewhere in considerable cost of program effectiveness. Furthermore, the rate at which systems can be reused must be considered. And absolutely, a booster can't just come down. The video sort of shows it sort of landing, instantly having this weird crane lifting this enormously yeah. heavy object and popping it back on and it flying, fuel. Yeah. flying again. Uh, when the space shuttle made... Uh, flights there was a long time it had to be sort of taken away and everything inspected you don't just just go fly 
particularly human rated flights. You can't yes. just stick a bunch of people's on a big load of explosives, yeah. the biggest load of explosives ever built. Yes. And go, no, it's all right, it'll probably be all right. You have to inspect every single thing yeah. that, that the components are still okay. This isn't one or two people. I certainly wouldn't want to be on the thousandth flight of a booster. So one of the big technical challenges is this refilling manoeuvre yes. up in space as well. You know, this is this is not something that's really kind of been done. Refueling in orbit. But yeah, this 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 is a hard manoeuvre. It's hard enough refueling things on Earth, as we saw with the SpaceX Falcon 9 explosion. Correct. This is like uh, use of a second stage to fly all the way to the Martian surface and back. This is a very bad idea, is what uh, Robert Zubrin says. For one thing, it entails sending a £7 million force thrust engine, which would weigh about 60 tonnes, and is large and massive, accompanying tankage all the way from low Earth orbit to the surface of Mars, and then sending them back at great cost to mission payload, and at great burden to Mars-based propellant production facilities. Mm. I mean, mean, that really is the nail on the head, isn't it? It's very annoying to build... To, to like be on Mars doing unnecessary fuel making. Yeah. So, yeah, th- th- this is, uh, that, I think this is a bit of a, he's really isolated a fantastic uh, point there. Sending of a large habitat on a round trip from Earth to Mars and back. This too is a very bad idea because the habitat will get to be used only one way, once every four years. Hmm. If we are building a Mars base for the colonising Mars, any large habitat sent to the planet's surface should stay there so the colonists can use it for their living quarters. Agreed, you'd think that was right. Going to great expense to send a habitat to Mars only to return it to Earth empty makes no sense. Mars needs houses. Mars do- does need houses. Fantastic. Quick trips to Mars. If we accept the optimistic estimates that Musk offered during his presentation, the SpaceX system would be capable of a 115-day one-way trip from Earth to Mars, a somewhat faster journey than the other proposed mission architectures. But the speedier trips impose a great cost on payload capability, and they raise the price tag. So here we go. It's another sort of uh, fault that he's kind of spotted. The use of supersonic retropropulsion to achieve la- landing on Mars, this is a breakthrough concept for the landing large payloads one that SpaceX has demonstrated successfully in landing the first stage of its Falcon 9 on Earth. So there he's, he's giving Elon the praise he really deserves. For that. Yes. And and I suppose, you know, a lot of the Falcon 9 uh, landings have been all about this. Absolutely. So, you know, that that is... Uh, it, it's really, really interesting. So that, that was a really interesting article. He, he then goes on to um, outline how he would change it. So I highly recommend you have a look at Robert Zubin. Check that out. Very clever, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't say it. I dare SpaceX's you. BFR, the it's full the story. Yeah. Uh, wait, but why? That's so a, uh, a very good and funny article. Uh, yeah. So why? Because it's fun and exciting, and B, it's not a great idea to have all our eggs in one basket. So really, this is Elon Musk's always been Elon Musk's driving force that, that he doesn't want humans to sit around on a planet that might get hit, well, will get hit by an asteroid one yes. day and wipe us out. So we do, you know, there's no two ways about it. It is a completely mute point. We have to become a multi-planet society or we will become extinct. There, that, that, that is... That's it. Why Mars? Well, why Mars indeed? Absolutely. Well, Venus, regarded by some as a better bet. It's nearer, has a similar mass to Earth, 
and we could build cities in the clouds at the atmospheric pressure that we used to on Earth. Is Lando Calrissian still in charge? Yeah, Lando. Well, we would uh, obviously the first mayor of Venus Cloud City would be yeah. someone called Lando. Yeah, it would have to be. Yeah, and why not? Yeah. And did you know that Yoda's face is slightly based on Einstein's? No, here's another one. E equals MC squared. Mm, MC squared? E equals it does. Yours is much better than mine. Uh, no, anyway, why not? Why are, we, why are we skipping the moon? What is it about skipping the moon that everyone... What, 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 why are well, we, it's resources, isn't it? It doesn't really have much there. Well, there's got water there, so there's one massive resource. It's only two and a half days away from Earth. It's really easy to get to compared to Mars. Like I've said before, just because you can swim a river does not mean you can swim the Atlantic. Well, we certainly can't live. We certainly can't have a proper colony on the moon, mainly because of the gravity. Yeah. And we can never terraform it because it's just not big enough. Then I don't want to go. Take me to Mars. So you're just going to skip Mars just because you're not listening to my argument. <laughs> that is it. Tip so, the table. So why not the moon? But everyone's just like, no, we've been to the moon, let's go to the Mars. I think that's it. Do you think that's it? I think that's the argument. We've just, uh, we just we've been I there. I don't know. We've been there, and it's just like, well, you know. But I would have thought it's a really... Here we go. He backs up my argument here. The moon, the moon has few natural resources, and with no atmosphere to either provide protection against the sun during the day or warm things up at night, both day and night become murderous. Same deal on Mercury. Mars has no buts. Mars has got very little atmosphere. It doesn't have a magnetosphere yeah, wait, that, that protects us. Wait till the wait till the clubs and the pizza joints are on there. The atmosphere will be amazing. <laughs> but that's the same as the moon. The great thing about the moon, you get a nice view of Earth as well, and you can probably have a normal-ish conversation. Yeah, but it doesn't it's sound only two hundred. Doesn't sound as cool Mars. though, does it? Where are you off to? The moon. The moon. Oh, didn't they go to that in the sixties? Yeah. What about you, mate? Oh, I'm going to Mars. See you later. Oh, that's so oh, cool. That's You're so a Martian. Cool. Martian. But don't you think it would be much easier to practice all these things on the moon first? Yes. Like go over, set up a moon base, test all this equipment, that's and true. test the things like the making methane. And we we need fifty years of development of all these technologies on a moon base. Mm. Then think about going to Mars. That's true. That's what it's like. I just sending like thousands of people to a planet when really we haven't done enough preparation is borderline insanity, surely. Yeah. I mean I love it. I mean, don't get me wrong, I so I so want this to work yeah. <laughs> and to be true. It's and just, I think that that's the trend. Yeah. There's a lot more that needs it, to be discussed. And maybe yeah, even maybe even Elon Musk has fallen into this trap as well. The romanticism of it. Oh. Mm. Yeah, I, I love it though. Uh, recently, Elon Musk did a um, Q and A. He did a Reddit Q and A. He did an AMA, isn't it called on Reddit? Ask me anything. So one of the questions is: What equipment and procedures will be required for refueling operations on Mars? Will they be designed to function autonomously for the initial unmanned test flight? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and also, are there any plans to introduce a third variant of the ITS with just a large shuttle-like payload bay to allow transporting bulkier cargo? 
We're still far from figuring this out in detail. No. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So, yeah, no fooling, huh? We are still far from figuring this out in detail, but the current plan is send dragon scouting missions. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the dragon scouting missions. Initially, just to make sure we know how to land without adding a crater and then to figure out the best way to get water. Heart of Gold spaceship flies to Mars, loaded only with equipment to build the propellant plant. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference. Yes, absolutely. About, uh, earlier on. First crewed mission with equipment to build rudimentary base and complete the propellant plant. Uh-huh. Try to double the number of flights with each Earth-Mars orbital rendezvous, which is every 26 months, until the city can grow by itself. Ooh, that's I mean, yeah, I mean, this is, again, vagueness rules in that particular paragraph, yes. isn't it? It's not really answered much of what was asked there. Considering the sinoidal reuse of the ITS spaceships, what form of permanent habitation do you foresee? Shipped modules or an eventual shift to in-situ resource utilisation such as Martian regolith plastic reinforced concrete structures? Initially, glass panes with carbon fibre frames to build geodesic domes on the surface, plus a lot of minor tunnelling droids. So the minor tunnel, my favourite kind. The, the, of the, yeah, the minor tunnelling droids is obviously a big part of this. That people mm-hmm. are going to live underground. Oh, the joys of living underground in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a freezing cold. Desert. Glory. With the latter, you can build out a huge amount of pressurised space for industrial operations and leave the glass domes for green living spaces. Mm. Nice. Uh, Like Silent Running. Very much like Silent Running. One of the greatest sci-fi films ever made. Very good, very good. Now, one of the things that was really brilliant uh, is the 3D printed designs of Mars habitats. Now, there were several of these, but Matt, which won it? Well, one, uh, the one that was just absolutely amazing was using ice. Yeah. So building Giant a, yeah, ju- a massive dome of ice that you could then pressure. And of course, ice would be perfect because you know the temperature's really, yeah, it's really cold low. enough. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. And if you get really thirsty, you can just lick the wall of your exactly. habitat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, whiskey so, on the rocks, just chip a bit off the wall. So yeah, you know, you kind of Inuits or. Or your Eskimos, yeah. if you're allowed to say that these days. Um, I think you are. Uh, may have been trailblazers when it came to... They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing when it comes to living on Mars. They knew. You've just got to make yourself a dome of ice. Uh, oh, yeah, so so they ask him about the carbon fibre tank. Yeah, what did he say? Sort of saying, yeah, for those that know their stuff, that was really big news. The flight tank will actually be slightly longer than the development tank shown, but the same diameter. That was built with latest and greatest carbon fibre pre-preg. In theory, it should hold cryogenic propellant without leaking. We'll take it up to two-thirds of burst pressure on an ocean barge in the coming weeks. Interesting. Wow, so he's going to take this thing out to the ocean and try and blow it up. Could this unprecedented amount of Delta V be used to fly between Mars and Earth, even outside the launch window, when payload mass is not a primary factor? The answer, yes. <laughs> that's all he says. So actually, that's another. So that was interesting. The the ask me anything. Great that he's interacting with people. He's not just said, "I've come up with this plan. I'm going to colonize Mars. This is what we're going to do," and shut the door, and we won't hear from him for another year. 
he's actively saying, what, what, what do you want to know? What do you want to know? I'm here for you. you know, I can't is, answer it all, but... That, I mean, to be fair, that is mu- the difference between Musk and Bezos. Yeah. So, yeah, the, there's a few thoughts on the, so in, there we inter- have the interplanetary transport system. I, uh, I was so excited... Me too. When when we I were texting each other, yeah, quite yeah, a bit. And, and 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 watching it, it was one of the most exciting things. And what I love about it is, is it plays into the whole what a lot of people are calling new space. That maybe we're going, we're seeing a resurgence of the interest in space. Yeah, there certainly has been a lot more. Yeah, and I think that that people will get more and more interested in space, particularly you know if 2018 he lands the Red Dragon. I was going to say on Mars, that yeah. will be a, a significant marker in the sand. And even more so if in 2022 there's a manned mission. I mean, can you believe that the first mm. person to step out? It's it's it. It will slip back. I mean, I'm willing to accept 2026, perhaps. Even then, I mean. I mean, yeah. Even then, this is wow. It happening in, in my, our lifetime. It happen, in happening in my lifetime is yeah, is phenomenal. Well, my, definitely mine. I don't know about yours. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, yeah. This is. It, it, I'm still. I'm still super excited about it. It's interesting. It's kind of that competition. Yeah, and that's good. You know, isn't and it? NASA is still talking about going to Mars. And uh, and Obama uh, did an op-ed in Time, was it? Absolutely, yeah. And and that was all about his com- the commitment to getting to Mars, mm. and also you know that it's enshrined in law that they've got to get to Mars. Yeah, they 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 have to go to Mars, and, and that's that. So mm. uh, that should be very very interesting, shouldn't it? Absolutely. And I tell you what, I'd like to hear as well is please tweet in your questions. Um, and your thoughts and your theories on this. Um, yeah, no, please go onto Twitter or onto our Facebook page or onto our Tumblr and just let us know what you think. I'd love to hear from some people. Yeah, well, there's obviously a load of clever people out there. Cleverer than us? It's just debatable, but it's. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, it would be fast. I mean, this is mind blowing, isn't it? When you start getting into the details of that. What are the rooms going to be like? What's the food going to be like? What is going to be the entertainment? Yeah. Musk was very much in the talk saying that he didn't just want this to be from A to B. He wanted it to be fun and exciting, so therefore there would be games that you could play on the way up, etc. But it's just it's hard to think about now, isn't it? Well, a lot, of, pe- a lot of people have been making uh, the case for virtual reality. I mean, mm. actually, virtual reality might be one of the things that makes... Um, these trips feasible. Well, I think it was on, uh, wasn't it, in Interstellar when he, one of the guys was freaking out a bit and fe- feeling very homesick, and someone just put headphones on him, and it was just rainfall and yeah, animal yeah, noise. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, I like that. I yeah, like that well, but I think I, I think like the vir- if virtual reality is quite good at kind of tricking your brain just a little bit, absolutely, so that you feel less isolated, so that you feel less like you're on a submarine. And more like you were at. Centre, what would you miss most, park. Matt? What would you miss most? I think you would miss. I mean, nip, nipping out to the shops. Nipping out to the shops. Weather. The weather. Tim Peake mentioned weather of any kind. Yeah, but I think that's it. I think it's food. Kind of, that certain food. Fresh freshness. 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 Is there is something you crave freshness, don't you? When you're in a stuffy mm. office and you go, oh, I just want some fresh oh, air. Yeah. I mean, you have to literally go out for fresh air for an hour walk every day. So your fresh air back on in in Mars would be from your spacesuit 
back into wherever you're going to be living. Yeah, which will stink. Which wouldn't be fresh, really, would no, it? It'll be it'll be stinky. Nah, I think he's gonna he's gonna create some smells. I mean, good smells. You think? Yeah, like tumbling. want lemon today. I think the whole place is gonna smell of be- a mixture of bo, <laughs> methane, which is you know really nice smelling, mm. and of course uh, lots of oil and things like that from machining. It's gonna smell like a factory at all times. <laughs> oh, if you could only can that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's gonna. It, it smell is such a big problem on the International Space Station. The smells are often, uh, uh, can be a result from equipment, off-gassing, crew, metabolic processes, food, experiments. 216 such contaminants have been identified and designed for. So the service, in the service module you have a micro-purification unit and in the lab the trace contaminant control sub-assembly performs a similar function. Interesting. So obviously you're going to have something. You're going to have to have something similar in the living spaces on Mars, or else it's going to stink. Yeah, this could be an issue. Yeah, it's probably quite far down on Musk's list, but I mean, and, and also I suppose what food are they going to have? I mean, like for the first decade or so, presumably all food is going to have to from really Earth. going to be coming from Earth, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be a long time before they before grow, they grow their potatoes. Grow any significant amount yeah, of food, Matt Damon esque. Yeah. So t- no, twenty twenty five is when he is first people carrying to Mars. Right. So yeah, the twenty twenty two is um, is just carrying cargo. Right. So twenty five to Mars. So r- roughly just over eight years then. That's just crazy. That still sounds nuts. But it? I, I mean, just that spaceship, that that rocket launching on the on, on, in like six years' time, mm. definitely going to that launch. Yes, we have to. I mean, we have to do the podcast from the launch. Yeah, uh, obviously. Yeah, no brainer. We'll probably be doing it from Elon Musk's box because. He did, after all, name the, the thing after the Interplanetary Podcast. So yeah, that's true. It's only fair. Yeah. So, you know, I hope you were bound to get some kind of VIP treatment. Oh, yeah, we're so VIPed on that yeah, one. I mean. SpaceX space suits when are we going to see them? are going to be revealed at the end of the year, apparently. Oh, I wonder if they do one in a nice royal blue. Do you think that they're going to have a vodka pouch like the Russians used to? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Actually, our, our mate Al would have liked that, wouldn't he? Bit of a vodka fan. <laughs> As we heard. Yeah. Vodka and spaghetti. Vodka and spaghetti. One of my favourite Legend. Bits. Elon Musk, love this quote, crazy people are a lot faster to the mic than scientists. That is true. That's something he learned from his... Uh, is he putting talks? himself forward in that as well? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and apparently SpaceX are still on to, be fly, uh, to refly... Falcon 9 first stage by the end of this year incredible incredible I, but that would be incredible I still don't think they're going to do an yeah, you're a, skeptical, Falcon, aren't you? a Falcon 9 this year <laughs> rightly so so we should re- we should move on to Falcon 9 and the and and what had just occurred when we were at um, doing our last podcast and all that settling in was the uh, was the Falcon 9 blowing up on the launch pad so what exactly happened we still don't know, mm. but the rumours are flying around now that SpaceX kind of have got a handle on what happened. 
uh, and some of the possibilities that people have sort of um, uh, lined up was that hydrazine was leaking from the satellite mm. it flowed out of the fairing as a liquid and then vaporised uh, and uh, not sure what the ignition source but something related going on to the internal going, something related to going to internal power yes. so could it be the, the satellite the actual payload itself leaking hydrazine absolutely the second theory being uh, that RP1 tank had ruptured due to overpressure caused by a GSE failure and mixed with the LOX in the tank and eventually forced the LOX umbilical out of its locking collar, creating a spark which ignited the already mixed fuel forward slash air liquid which flash vaporised at atmospheric pressure. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, so basically one of the two liquid oxygen chillers had been taken offline due to an oil leak, according to radio traffic. Now, that's interesting. If the oil had found its way into the liquid oxygen flow, it would have solidified into droplets that could have jammed the liquid oxygen valve, preventing it closing and overpressurizing the liquid oxygen tank. Mm. So it actually might have been, yeah, a, a something, a pad failure. Yeah. So that's that's pretty interesting. Or a fine leak developed in the in the tank itself. Uh, and over and uh, and that blew back, which sprayed fuel droplets through the liquid oxygen cloud. This may have built up a static charge on the metallic hose, and flashed over, and, and that's what caused a explosion God, or a fast fire. Static so, charges. So really yeah, yeah, st- maybe a static charge. I mean, one of the very very interesting things that came out was the uh, suddenly the realisation that it might be a competitor that mm. had caused this explosion, yes. which led uh, Elon Musk to want to, to go on the top of the United Launch Alliance roof, which has a good view of the launch pad, launch pad number 40. Mm. Um, so it has a good view from there. So it, obviously the ULA did not allow the SpaceX um, SpaceX representative mm. on the roof to, yes, to check, no doubt. But, uh, but I mean, and the whole thing, panic at best, caught yeah. stirring at the worst. It didn't. It seemed to be an extraordinary thing. I mean, if you were him, you'd want to look at all the options. Yeah, course. but I think now they've realised, of course, that these are genuine threats. That that you could have either a competitor or a terrorist, or, or you know, yeah. uh, uh, actually destroying 300 million quid's worth well I mean way more than 300 I mean the, the, the price will rocket and rocket and rocket it will cost you know half a billion excuse the pun yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes so yeah yeah that, that that was interesting in itself that that whole little bit of terrorism mm. one of the really interesting things is uh, the idea of solid oxygen oh, that yes. came up mm. So they were saying it might have been formation of solid oxygen in the carbon overwrap of one of the helium bottles in the upper stage tanks. If it was liquid, it would have been squeezed out, but under pressure it could have ignited with the carbon. This is the leading theory right now, but subject to confirmation. So that is a look at that. I mean, mm. that that is some kind of weird effect where, where as the oxygen pushes up against the carbon it solidifies and then that then reacts with the carbon of the of the the uh, tanks mm. you would have thought that they'd test that though wouldn't you 
Well, this is, this is maybe SpaceX don't do enough testing. Mm. This is one of the problems. Fast fail. Yeah. Or That's it. fail fast. Seems an expensive way of... Well, you on. know, it's expensive to, to go to work slowly and not get satellites up. Very true. So, guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Check out the uh, the blog. Check out the blog. The, the check Tumblr. out Twitter. Check out Instagram. Check out Facebook. And as I said, uh, give us give us your thoughts and, and questions. And don't forget to subscribe to the Interplanetary Podcast on whatever podcast listening device you like. iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, etc. We're on them all. We're on them all. And if you can uh, obviously rate us, that really helps our ratings and puts us up in the things to listen to that are similar to things like the Planetary Society. Absolutely. Not even interplanetary. Yeah, come on. Come on. Give us a rate. So, yeah, just rate us, and uh, that'll push us up. Thank you very much. So uh, we'll see you next time, which might be sooner than you think, because we're thinking of... Uh, this was a SpaceX special, so we'll, we'll probably do a more uh, more of our usual thing. Uh, and coming up next is uh, the interview with David Baker that delves more into the uh, SpaceX... Um, explosion and also deals with the a zoomed out picture. We did talk to I talked to David about my, my love of that, the zoomed in picture and the zoomed out picture of things, and and he does a fantastic job on that. Absolutely, look forward to that. We'll see you in nine. So last month we had the pleasure of talking to spaceflight editor David Baker, who's also worked with NASA on the Gemini, Apollo, and Space Shuttle programs between 1965 and 1984. And he's written about a hundred books on spaceflight, including some very popular Hayes manuals. The explosion that SpaceX experienced on September the 1st has sent shockwaves throughout the space industry. And I was very eager to ask our space expert just how common an event like this was. Precedent for the kind of accident that we experienced here with the Falcon 9 on the 1st of September, but it's unprecedented in the fact that it brings together a series of situations which should never have been brought together at the same place and at the same time. When you test rocket engines, it's really vital that you do it in as accurate a configuration as you can for the actual flight vehicle that's going to leave the pad. Now, usually, you test engines completely separate from the rocket stage. Then you install the engines in the stage itself, and you fire that in a configuration with all of the electronics, the avionics, and all of the fluid lines, and the hydraulics, and the pneumatics, and everything factored in that's going to be as close as possible to the conditions the vehicle will see when it comes to fire for launch. But you never mix the propulsion and the payload. And... The really outstanding aspect of this, which I think is is really worrying people very intensely, is that in order to speed up the rate of flight, Musk has taken a set of situations which would never be conventionally accepted in best practice of preparing for a launch. And unfortunately, because something went wrong in the pressurization of the tanks, because he had this all-up stack configured actually on the launch pad with a very expensive satellite payload on the top, with the loss or with this particular event, it destroyed everything. And it's incurred a financial liability, which really is pretty horrendous. 
the actual launch vehicle was about $50 million. The actual satellite was about $285 million. The launch pad itself was valued at about $40 million. The vehicle is insured for the time it ignites for launch. No ignition took place of the propulsion systems. And even though this was a test, the insurance would still not have cut in if these engines had fired a few minutes later as they were expected to. So Musk has presented both his client and his company with an exposure which is not normally acceptable in best practice of any rocket operator. And so he has now stacked up a series of bills which potentially is around 400 million when he could have got away if he had adopted a slightly less hasty procedure by testing this on a separate test stand, certainly without a satellite attack, which is the last thing you do, for about 50 million. And instead, it's, it's about eight or nine times that that potentially he's exposed to. The weeks after the SpaceX anomaly, the matter of insurance seemed remarkably unclear, especially considering what was at stake. Even now, the picture is not totally clear and one suspects for commercial and confidentiality reasons. But I wanted to know if we'd experienced anything like this insurance fiasco before. There is precedent with regard to this insurance issue because when we got the loss of the Antares that Orbital ATK had when they were trying to launch Antares for a payload delivery mission to the International Space Station, the liability there really shows the kind of exposure which you can have unwittingly believing that you're covered. Now, in fact, the launch site up at Wallops Island, which is where Orbital ATK were launching their Antares, there was about $40 million worth of damage done there when the Antares exploded. And NASA thought, well, that's okay, we're insured. Now it transpires they were not insured because the insurance requires there to be some physical dynamic activity unassociated with the actual event on the pad. If an aircraft had crashed into it, that would have been fine. It would have been covered. But because it was being leased out to a company, much as NASA has leased this particular, or the Air Force, actually, because this is not on NASA territory at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. Mm. This is an Air Force facility. NASA has a very, very tiny portion of Cape Canaveral, which is the Kennedy Space Center. And that's a matter which, which we can come to when we talk about what options he has with regard to other launch pads. But on the precedent that has taken or, or that has occurred, the NASA Inspector General had to get involved because suddenly the government was directly exposed and said, we can't pay for this because we were leasing out this wallet silent facility to a private company. They thought they had insurance, but they didn't because of the nature of the failure. And there is no precedent for having a failure actually on a leased pad. What happened there was the state legislature got involved because they were then being lobbied by the people who run Wallops Island launch sites in order for the state to pay. And then finally, NASA had to eventually get in and pay for it out of its own budget when it thought it was insured and wasn't simply because it was in, quote, the national interest, unquote, to get Orbital ATK flying back as quickly as possible because it was necessary to resupply the International Space Station. Mm. And now it seems we're going down the same old road here. A lot of people are jumping up and down and saying, oh, yeah, they're insured, that's fine, but this was the ground segment and this was the facilities. And over these weeks that we've had since the 1st of September event with Falcon 9, 
it appears that it's an uh-oh moment again that there really isn't cover for this kind of provision. And in fact, uh, there's no indication that the customer um, has responsibility because there is, is a belief and there's certainly a preliminary filing for something in the region of $400 million coming at SpaceX simply because the customer is unable to provide the services to Mark Zuckerberg for part of the payload. Part of this satellite's job was to provide broadband services to Central Sahara and Southern Africa. Um, and it was an Israeli-built satellite. And the Israelis are talking because of the loss of prestige to their programs, even though it was nothing to do with the satellite, the fact that you've had a loss in an accident um, is, is not exactly what you want on your corporate CV. Nevertheless, there is talk that they have grounds for filing um, with SpaceX for an amount of money which will cover the loss of the satellite itself. So it is not insured. And in any event, it is not the responsibility of the payload operator to determine whether a payload should be on the launch vehicle. There's no doubt that uh, the decision, because Elon Musk said they were moving to test on pad in an all-up systems configuration, simply because they wanted to cut time. So was Elon Musk's SpaceX taking too many shortcuts? What else were they doing wrong? What had brought them to this moment? I asked David. The two things that any commercial operator needs is consistency. And consistency means that you repeatedly fly a production line vehicle which does not have modifications other than improvements or enhancements. Now, Elon Musk has already admitted that each individual launch vehicle is slightly different because they are applying as they learn. The only consistency we're getting from Elon Musk's SpaceX operation in terms of the way the company is managed is that the only consistency we're seeing is that there is a consistent sequence of changes where every launch vehicle is very, very slightly different. And because there's such a backlog which has received considerable attention from the market itself, concerned that SpaceX will not be able, it just simply physically cannot satisfy the 50 or 60 customers that it's got lined up because of this move to accelerate. And instead of consistency going in repeatability of the design, the only consistency we're getting is the inconsistency of standards, that they are moving consistently forward and changing each individual launch vehicle in order to try to cut time here, reduce the downtime there. And across the spectrum, there's concern within the industry that he's spread too wide. He wants to recover stages and reuse them. They've got those stacking up in their facility. He wants to develop the Dragon 2, which is, of course, the people carrier, and then he's got this other application which is moving on very rapidly to Falcon Heavy. And for that, Launchpad 39A, which is the famous Apollo and Shuttle launch pad, that is at the Kennedy Space Center. Hmm. And we've heard within the last week uh, that, in fact, um, all future launches will shift to Pad 39A. And that's an indicator that we're going to see at least two or three months delay in any flights with a Falcon rocket, whether it's Falcon 9 or Falcon Heavy. 
SpaceX seemed to be making amazing progress at a rate not seen before. Is this to do with the quicker way of working, the well-known Musk timelines, a company pushing at the boundaries? Surely this is a good thing. Isn't this what the industry needs and the public want? It's exciting. I put this to David. We definitely need these kind of people. We need these kind of companies. And we need this kind of entrepreneurship. It it is by no means a condemnation of the principle, but I think this is all going to take time. And I think overall, the thing that worries me enormously um, is, is the fact that there is a haste and a pace to expectation. And it is almost as though the world itself is expecting that all this stuff is pretty standard. You like the blue touch paper, stand back, you've got a bunch of heroes. And, and that is not the way that it actually is. Rocket science is what it says, and it is very hard. And at the moment, Elon Musk's reliability rate is 90%, which is pretty good for a startup system. In fact, it's very, very good indeed. When you look back at the early stages of the various iterations and models of the Ariane launch vehicle, uh, it's, it's no worse than that. Um, so there is a learning curve, and I think it's really quite spectacular and quite outstanding that he's been able to achieve what he has. But uh, there's a general, uh, there's a general expectation and almost a hype within the the broad scale of the space program. We have huge expectations among those on the fringes of this industry, among groups of enthusiasts, and among fellow travellers, shall one say, on this great cavalcade of wagon trains to leave the planet and move to Mars. I mean, that is decades away. And there are huge technical as well as physiological problems which are not even being addressed at present. And it just makes me very concerned, I think, that uh, across the breadth and the depth of this, that the expectations are really being raised extraordinarily so. And this week, there are plans being made to launch in London a huge six-part series on the National Geographic TV channel with Elon Musk and a number of people who are projecting forward that they're going to be on Mars in just a handful of years. Well, this isn't going to happen. It's really infecting an industry that very, very, very much needs a level of conservatism and solid, tenacious engineering progress rather than trying to rush these things through and, by the way, make a bit of money on the side by selling satellite launches. Mm. And, and he's not about just that. He has great aspirations. But the way this is being handled, um, we've been here before, we've seen these things. Commercial space began in the 1970s in the satellite world. Now 95% of satellites are paid for by private companies. We're going that way in the launcher business, and we need to. We need to drive these costs down. Whether reusable stages are the way to go is very much open to debate. And you can create statistical and analytical models which favor the side that are for it and the side that is against it. And in fact, United Launch Alliance, which runs the Atlas and the Delta launch vehicles, which Elon Musk is challenging, and United Launch Alliance have had it all their way for a very, very long time, and they've had the run on all of the military payloads. And now, of course, Elon Musk has been certificated with Falcon to bid for those flights. And that's really what's needed to get the launch cost down there, because that's 
really taxpayers' money, that is, that's not a commercial operation mm. where you're launching military satellites. Because remember, the other side of the space program is the military space program, which spends just as much money as all of the civilian side. But it's the half that's never discussed. And yet the launch traffic requirements there are, are huge in terms of revenue earning. And that's why Elon Musk went for those contracts. And he's completely shuffled the pack and credibly so, because Falcon will come back. It will be a very good launch vehicle, um, as long as he can just stop fiddling and tinkering with it. And, and you know, they say that once launch satellites last so long just because engineers can't get their spanners up to them. <laughs> and this is the problem now. We're seeing too much tinkering with these individual launch vehicles trying to shave costs here, cut time there. And that's the problem. So consistency is needed to challenge these big checkbook takers like United Launch Alliance, who have been charging the government huge amounts of money to launch the Atlas and the Delta with their military payloads. And, and that, that is a whole area which, uh, which is being addressed by this commercial sector. But even there, the launch vehicle which will succeed the Atlas and the Delta, the Vulcan launch vehicle which they're developing, they are going now for recoverable first-stage engines. Not the whole stage, hmm. but they're now presenting papers and they're talking with industry suppliers about using aero-braking concepts, these huge dish-shaped heat shield structures which could be deployed after the rocket motors separate from the stages themselves and are brought back down. And when you look at the drawings for those and the engineering projections for those, it's clear that reusability, which has been given a wake-up call by people like Elon Musk and and also Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, both of which are adamant about returning stages. You've even got the big boys now, really, like Boeing and Lockheed Martin, United Launch Alliance, talking about recovering the actual engines rather than the stages. So everybody's going reusable now. Hmm. And, uh, and I think that's, that's something that the commercial sector has been very, very good at promoting, the fact that it's, it's kicked the stool over and the cards have all been reshuffled. Regardless of their shortcomings, SpaceX have had some great successes. In the short time they've been going, they've managed to crack landing the massive Falcon 9 first stage on land and at sea. Not only is this spectacular to watch, but they're inching towards that goal of reusability. It, it's a remarkable achievement, and, and this really goes back to the first attempts that were... Um, proposed but never actually tested or demonstrated back with with the Saturn launch vehicle rocket stages, the Saturn 1 launch vehicle, um, which first flew on the 28th of October 1961, and uh, that uh, was proposed there by the Von Braun team working at what is now the Marshall Space Flight Center for the recovery of the first stages. People have been trying to achieve this but never actually made it, um, and, and the math works out very well. And I think in terms of Elon Musk himself, he's, he gets the right people around him. He gets people who didn't have a voice at the big players like Boeing and Lockheed Martin. Those are huge corporate structures. 
and you can be stifled in organisations like that. And where there is a driven corporate requirement, which is determined by a board which controls the direction of business interests, if you have an entrepreneurial idea, you don't fit in a big corporate structure like Boeing or Lockheed Martin because it doesn't gel with the seasoned deliberations of the board, which has to satisfy shareholders. Mm-hmm. When you go to work for people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of these other people, and, and of course Orbital ATK was one of the little players a few years ago, um, and I knew those guys when they were startups, and their pants were on fire just the same, and they made a huge go of it, and they've now settled down with all of those entrepreneurial nuances and they have not become um, bogged down with these great corporate mentalities. So the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins and the, and the Northrop Grumman's of this world, notice is served on them by people like this, and there are going to be failures. So I think we have to take that in perspective as well and say that really the reliability of the Falcon 9 has been extraordinary. Mm. For a new week, nobody expected this. There were detractors from the very beginning who said, well, he can't possibly promote this vehicle as a commercial vehicle. And here he is with 60 customers. Um, and he will work for them, and they will work for him. And, and that's a good thing to see, because it's going to completely shake up this whole business, which was becoming far too expensive and, frankly, far too comfortable for the big players, like the big, big manufacturers. But many of those people who wished away their hours in these great corporate organizations wanting to give vent to their engineering and entrepreneurial genius found a home with these entrepreneurs. And so Elon Musk, while he learns a lot himself, um, he gets the right people around him and potentially he's a very attractive place to go and work. SpaceX pride themselves on making everything in the U.S., They build their own Merlin rocket engines and scoff at the competition for using Russian-built technology. When I mentioned this to David, his answer took me on a much longer journey than I was expecting. As David later put it, every telescope should have a microscope inside. There is the nuts and bolts view and the zoomed-out global view. Well, well, of course, this this is a very new thing, this this reliance on non-US propulsion systems and and it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years that you've had this migration away. And, of course, a lot of that came about as a result of the U.S. State Department having a lot of discussions and negotiations with Russia immediately after the collapse of the communist system. Um, we were, I was very involved myself um, during the 1980s, uh, during the period of the Soviet Union, in actually going to negotiate um, or trying to find ways in which we could embrace Western technology into Russian engineering systems and vice versa. The particular thing that I have, have um, in my recall is the fact that Pratt & Whitney wanted to get their engines installed on Russian Ilyushin airliners. The, the airframes, the aerodynamics of those aircraft were, were world-class. Russian aerodynamicists are the best in the world. And they outgun us every time with the design of their combat aircraft, which are phenomenal. But their propulsion systems and their engines were, were very unreliable. And they knew, the Russians knew, even in the 1980s, um, just before Gorbachev came to power, they reached out to the West 
and they said, look, you know, let's let's try to find ways in which we can buy your engines, Pratt and Whitney or GE, um, because we need them on our aircraft. And the Americans were very very happy to discuss that, and and the State Department supported those discussions way back in the 1980s. And when we finally got this this collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990, 1991, there was a cascade of deals done. And one of those was the fact that recognizing the complete absence of investment in advanced propulsive technologies for launch vehicles, when the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins wanted to move on and develop their Atlases and Deltas, it was very, very easy to buy cheaply with the very strong approval of the U.S. State Department to do business with Russia. And that's where that came in. So it's relatively new. We never used to have anything like this. And the great core has been what has happened to American rocket engineering, as in rocket motors rather than launch vehicles. Mm. Because the last engine that was developed in the United States prior to the Merlin and, and the Jeff Bezos engines BE-4 and BE-3, prior to that, was the shuttle engine in the early 1970s. So there had been a 30-year lag even when they came to buy these Russian engines. So that's how we slid into this. And now, of course, it's all gone pear-shaped politically with Russia. And now, of course, everybody's racing hard to try to offload these RD-180s, even though Antares, coming back now after its failure... Is, is actually using more Russian engines. So this is the last hurrah, if you will, <laughs> of the Russian engine period on American launch vehicles. So it's been this weird blip period, but it's by no means been, been normal in the, in the whole history of the space program. The State Department was very concerned that with the collapse of the Soviet system, there was a huge concern um, that there would be an implosion and that you'd have the breakup of... I mean, here was was the strongest nuclear power in the world with approximately 10,000 strategic nuclear warheads. And who's going to govern that country? The whole system is, is, is in reverse revolution. Um, and a lot of people are trying to seize power. And so the State Department worked very, very closely. Uh, and I can remember the, the flurry at, at the, um, at the uh, Russian embassy in London uh, because of that time I was in the UK, and we liaised very, very strongly with, with the Russian embassy, um, and, and it was almost a routine visit, um, arranging these trips to, to various field centers in uh, Russia in order to, to inspect these various systems. And it would probably have been quite astounding for the general public to have fully understood that even during the height of the Cold War, we had intensive discussions and large numbers of people were back and forth in each other's countries while there was this great ideological divide being played out by the world's press and by the, the, front, the front pages, if you will, of the political establishment, whereas behind the scenes there was a vast amount of work going on. And we were ready for it when the collapse came and the State Department said, right, now is the time to drive home even further. And that's why the Russians were brought aboard for the International Space Station, so that uh, we, we could get them really on side and keep them close and give them that feel-good factor. And there was a sense in, 
in government, both in London and in Washington. And I felt it very acutely, the fact that, that right, this is no time to start declaring we won. Now is the time to push the past behind us and get on with working with these guys. So let's get them in on the space station and let's get them in on helping us upgrade our launch vehicle systems. Unfortunately, the deals didn't work out sending American aircraft engines over to Russian aircraft for, for various reasons. But a lot of other things exchanged. And, uh, you know, it was really quite, quite extraordinary. When you drive in the politics of all this, it, it, it's a very sobering realization. When I went around in, in the period of the Soviet Union, back in the early 1980s, went around these machine-building factories at uh, Ilyushin and Tupolev and MiG, all of those places that were underpinning the hardware for the space program, and these usually were state factories that were behind these huge steel walls, rather, rather like small communities, and you'd go through these, these huge iron doors, not just gates, but doors, and opening up behind those, those walls were, were almost campuses of little villages where all the machine building work went on. And as you walked around the factories, you could see on all, all, of, all of the machine tools there was the name Krupp, 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 on all of the machine tools, which they had bought from Germany in the 1930s. And it gives you a sense of what goes around comes around, mm. that while history may record that two ideological players on the world stage seemingly with a great barrier between them. That was really only just for public consumption. Behind the scenes, there was a vast, just as there had been between Germany and Russia in the 1930s. Thank you very much to David for taking the time to speak to us and joining the dots from 1930 German tooling to SpaceX explosions. David will be at the British Interplanetary Society on November the 2nd giving a talk on US spy satellites from 1954 to the present day. Book online at www.bis-space.com. I'll see you there.